I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. Today, we're going to do all things coronation, because obviously it's the big story of the day. But because it's me, I will be adding my cunning cast twist. I want to get the history behind the headlines and to find out more about what this rather extraordinary ritual is, where it comes from, what it stands for, all that kind of thing. But of course, I've got to get the latest gossip about Charles's coronation. So I've invited two guests along to help me do that. But before I introduce them to you, here's Melissa, as always, my producer for a chat. Hello, mate. Hi, Tony. So, Full disclosure, are you a royalist? Do you support the monarchy? Oh, that is such a difficult question to unpack. I absolutely recognise the work that Queen Elizabeth did. Uh, stunningly good work, holding the country together at a time when it was fragmenting, dealing with the Commonwealth in the way that she did, while having to cope with a whole lot of dysfunctional kids. I just think she was absolutely... Brilliant. I, I also. You're talking about. I noticed you're talking about the Queen, not the King. Yeah. Well, that's that's my point, really, because we are at a very odd time now, where an awful lot of those things which I've just talked about aren't really relevant, and maybe other things are more relevant. Like, is it actually right that the King or Queen should be able to influence or even change government legislation? Should our king or queen be the largest landowner in the country? Um, one I feel pretty strongly about, why are they let off their taxes when they are that rich? There are a lot of things there that make me feel really unhappy. So am I a Republican? Am I a Royalist? Depends what day it is, really. Do you think watching the coronation will change your mind? Because I felt the funeral really did something to me mm. and the whole country. It really made us think. Do you think the coronation will do the same thing? I used to hate rituals. I used to think that rituals were just this irritating, old-fashioned thing which got in the way of real life. I don't think that anymore. I think the fascinating thing about them is that they are shared moments, whether they're your own wedding or the state funeral. What was the question? Will it change your mind Will it change it? my mind? So, no, I don't think it will, but... I imagine I'll enjoy it, although probably, like most people, I'll probably dip in and out of it throughout the morning, go off and make myself a sandwich, go and have a wee, go and see how the plants are doing, and then come back and watch a bit more coronation. Now, the Queen's coronation, I think you might have been a little boy then, just doing my maths. I think do you I remember was, it? Yes, I do. Yeah, I was about six. And I can remember very clearly sitting under the dining room table watching our new telly because we got a telly for the coronation like so many people. And my mum had given me this tiny, tiny little coronation state coach with tiny, tiny little horses, which I kept for years and years. It was such a sweet little thing and I just used to go round and round and round in a circle. Yeah. Well, Tony, like a matchbox toy. Yeah, that exactly like that, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. What great memories. Well, let's hear more. Can't wait. I'm here with two friends, Kate Williams, historian, author, TV presenter, known each other forever since the <laughs> Time Team days. I really wanted to, to get involved in this. And a new friend, Emily Nash, who is the Hello Royal Editor, Hello Magazine, Royal e Editor and co-host of A Right Royal Podcast. 
Hi, Emily. Hello, thanks for having me. Not at all, not at all. Right, let's try and unpack this thing. The word coronation, is it coroner as in crown? Yes, crowning is almost integral to monarchy. You go right back. The oldest crown we've ever found is uh, from 5000 BC, from around 5000 BC. And we're seeing Egyptians with crowns and Julius Caesar actually turned down the crown from Mark Antony. It is almost sort of back in prehistoric times when the idea of the chief or the monarch or the leader wears a hat that makes them taller. So the crown is the integral, essential part of the ceremony. And it's all about who gets the crown and having the crown put on your head. I can understand why that might be important in some civilizations, But we've got telly in a way... We don't need to be told that, do we? What, what do you think, Emily, the, the coronation is for? I think it's a, a bit of theatre. It's a hugely symbolic moment. Obviously, our now King Charles has been king since the moment the late Queen passed away. But this is formalising that knowledge. And like you say, we know he's king. We're used to it already. But this is about telling the world and it is at its heart a sacred symbolic moment between the monarch, his people and the church. So, I mean, it's tradition if it's not broke. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because the coronation ceremony is really, I think, sometimes the monarch signing their job contract saying, I am going to uphold the constitution, I'm going to uphold the church, the sacred nature of constitutional monarchy. I'm not going to start invading parliament and arresting people like Charles I. And if you go back right to some of the earliest coronations we have records of, that in, say, 925 Athelstan, that's, I think, the first coronation in which it's talked about what the contract is between the monarch and the people. And you see that throughout history. So, for example, William and Mary, they post the post the Glorious Revolution, post James II being deposed, their coronation ceremony actually says, you know, this is your job. And if you don't do your job well, we can get rid of you. And it's really interesting to me. And also, you know, it is a symbolic, it is symbolic, it is a job contract. But when we look at the monarchs who've been most easily pushed off their thrones, for example, Lady Jane Grey, for example, Edward VIII abdicating, I do think it would have been slightly more difficult for Mary I to have deposed, to have said, you know, she's a knight, you know, Lady Jane Grey doesn't have this, does not, is not queen if she'd been crowned. And it would be more, I think, would have been more there'd be more resistance to Edward VIII abdicating had he been crowned. So although it's symbolic, I think it does, that anointing moment, it does secure the monarch in a way that's very important. It's no, it's, it's no coincidence, I think, that for a long time, monarchs stayed in the Tower of London before their coronation. That was the most secure place because this was the time when they were most vulnerable. I suppose then that's they're what, getting confirmed. Yeah, I suppose that's what we forget, that there have been so many times in history where the the monarch has been really vulnerable. Although, in a way, that's kind of true now, isn't it, Emily? For a long time, before he became king, there were questions raised about whether Charles was the right man for the job and whether it should go straight to William instead. That's right. I mean, it was never going to happen constitutionally. He was always going to become the next king. But look, I think it's interesting that the coronation is happening so soon, if relatively speaking, after the accession to the throne. I think it absolutely makes sense for them from a PR perspective to go ahead and do it within just a few months rather than waiting the full year as they did with Queen Elizabeth II. There's a lot of goodwill towards him, perhaps more so than people were expecting. After the Queen's passing, people feel he carried himself well. His popularity is actually as high as it has been for many years. And uh, it seems sensible to press ahead from from his point of view. I suppose one of the things about him is that there was a time 20 or 30 years ago when, let's be honest, we all thought he was a bit weird. He, uh, He talked about things that other people didn't talk about much, certainly not royal things. But actually an awful lot of what he was saying was about how the climate may change, how a lot of animals were going to die, all the things that are fundamental to us now. He was there before us. You're absolutely right. I mean, he was ahead of his time, certainly on climate change. You know, he was talking about that 50 years ago, which is incredible to think about now. It's such common currency in this day and age. And people really have come to understand what he was railing about for, for such a long time. And I think it's probably been a great frustration to him over the years that more people didn't take him more seriously at the time but um and now he's obviously in a position where 
where he can't really get as involved or be as outspoken as he has been, but he has built up this legacy. He's also very, I think he, I think the word is ecumenical. He's, he's interested in a lot of religions, isn't he? And not just in the Church of England. And talks about that in a way that, uh, you know... Uh, teachers would talk about religion nowadays not sort of sticking the church of england up as the number one compared with everybody else's religion but in a way that's a a little bit of a problem for him isn't it this is essentially a church of england service that's right and he is the head of the church of england but i think this is more about representation and we know the royal family has been accused of racism and unconscious bias by members of the family in the last couple of years and i think this is really about showing people around the world not just the UK that he is very open it is a broader church if you like than than it has been in the past and I think we'll see that at the coronation there are going to be lots of different faiths represented um, in terms of faith leaders appearing but it's something he does in his day-to-day work as well you know we've seen him recently with uh, Sudanese refugees we've seen him bringing together all kinds of people at the Commonwealth Service and this is about him understanding that he needs to connect and the monarchy needs to connect with a more diverse group of communities than it has done in the past if it wants to remain relevant. I find what you've both been saying as it were about the nature of kingship really interesting when you think about where we are as a society right now. I was going to say we're at a crossroads. We're at, we're at about we're at spaghetti junction. That <laughs> the commonwealth seems to be dissolving all all around us. William and Kate went out to the Commonwealth, I'm sure with a great deal of goodwill, and were constantly confronted by nervousness about why they should be there and what they should be saying and what will happen in the future. The the whole Church of England debate is up for grabs. We're no longer as associated with Europe as we used to be and we haven't rebuilt a relationship with America. All the things that somehow Queen Elizabeth represented, that kind of social security are out the window and this poor bloke has got to pick it up and run with it. I think it's interesting though he's he's I think very not relaxed that's not the right word but he understands that the Commonwealth is shifting and changing and actually by the way it's increased in numbers in the last few years we're now at 56 member states and these are countries who are choosing to be part of uh, this free association. What sort of countries is this? Uh, the most recent to join are Togo and Benin. So it's very, it's a very popular organisation still. I think you have to separate the modern day organisation from, you know, its historic roots and from um, the colonialism that it's associated with. And by the way, I was on that trip with William and Kate to the Caribbean and it was really unfortunate the way that that became the focus because a lot of that trip was extremely positive and and they were well received within the communities but look neither Charles nor William are ignoring this situation they've both spoken out about the challenges of the modern world and understanding William's gone as far as to say he doesn't think he'll necessarily be head of the commonwealth in future and I think they accept you know that it's for other countries to decide how they are governed uh, moving forward so these things perhaps were seen as sacrosanct under the late queen I think her two heirs understand that we're living in an entirely different world nowadays and and we'll go with that I know we're supposed to be talking about the coronation but what you just said on the trip where William and Kate where where did they go to they went to Belize Jamaica and the Bahamas and I think you know the the thing is that there is obviously the backdrop of calls for reparations that's something that's not going away but I think the the things that jarred with people viewing particularly the images were the moments where they appeared on the back of this Land Rover that the Queen had appeared in which was an idea of the Jamaicans that they would recreate this lovely moment when the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh made a similar visit and it obviously looked like something out of a colonial drama and was not the image that they wanted to portray at yeah. all. But I think it's all about the optics, isn't it? And that kind of was encapsulated it, it the whole argument. Was all about the optics? Or, or were there quite a few pissed off people who wanted to have their say? No, look, I think that, you know, there are people who will demonstrate whenever these things happen because people have different viewpoints on on these things. And I think the royals are really conscious that they're walking into controversial territory. But unlike in the past where these things just wouldn't have been discussed, we've had, you know, Charles going to visit a slave fort in Ghana talking about his horror about the history of slavery. And they are addressing it now. It may not be going as far as 
people would like it to go. But I think they're no longer sort of ignoring this. And, you know, they understand that the realities of the modern world mean that people have to open up. Well, I'm, I'm glad I asked you that question because it, it actually provides quite a tangible context for the space in which this coronation is taking place. But going right back to the practicalities of it, who organises it? Is, is it the government? I think it's done in dialogue with the palace and the government. So there are lots of stakeholders involved, but you have to consider coming to uh, an agreement on a date that doesn't clash with any major events. Is the Abbey free on that day? I know it sounds silly, but, you know, actually somewhere like Westminster Abbey, apparently people have to book in two years in advance. I mean, I'm sure they make an exception for the for the monarch. It's like anybody's um, wedding in that sense, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. But things like local elections, they are happening um, just before the coronation. They can't clash with those they'll also take into consideration any elections that might be happening in realm countries uh, because they will want other um, governors to come and to attend and it's quite a complicated thing to put together and you know contrary to popular belief the real planning has only really started since Christmas. Really I'd imagine that there were sort of secret coteries of courtiers planning it week after week in case it was going to happen before they thought it would. No, I think, well, I think there will always have been an outline plan. You know, Westminster Abbey is a bit of a dead cert. <laughs> They're going to go for somewhere when the weather's likely to be warmer, when people are likely to be around. So obviously a bank holiday weekend is a good way of ensuring that people are able to celebrate. But really, you know, it's in quite poor taste to go and ask the future monarch, you know, how are we going to celebrate your big moment? When your mother's died. Absolutely. Yeah. I think people probably felt well that's a bit rude really to go there so while people courtiers people in government had a lot of ideas planning yes did begin after the queen died but I think it's only really stepped up post Christmas because the king himself had a hell of a lot to get his head around. Let's move on to the tangibles of the coronation some of which seem to me pretty daft you've got the scepter and the orb now a scepter is essentially a stick, isn't it? It's, it's a, a stick. baton. That's what it is. A stick. A stick. And the orb is essentially a ball. Yeah. It's like some game children might have played <laughs> in the Middle Ages. Why does the monarch need a stick and a ball? A stick and a ball. Yeah. We were just talking about how far back crowns go. The idea of putting a hat on your chief or leader is back to the earliest civilizations. Sticks are so important too. They're a staff. It's like Jesus and its staff. It's like the shepherd. And when you see very early representations of monarchy, they have a hat and they have a staff, some kind of stick. So that's what the scepter is. It goes right back to those very early days. The idea of it's the idea of the monarch as shepherd of their flock. There are two scepters: the scepter with cross. And there's the scepter with dove, and it's a scepter with cross we're most likely to see with a gigantic blob of Cullinan diamond in it. And that's really meant to symbolise the monarch's role as God's representative on earth. So the scepter is very important. The orb is supposed to symbolise their role as Christ's representative, God on earth. But that's much newer, isn't it, the idea of the orb? Well... All of our crown jewels are comparatively new. They were all remade by Charles II when he came to the throne in 1660 because when Oliver Cromwell executed Charles I, that was the end of his crown jewels. The whole lot were melted down and sold off. And we think a few jewels were saved, for example, the Black Prince's ruby, but the majority of stuff was sold off apart from one spoon. So the only surviving thing we have dating back to the medieval times is one gold spoon. And that was because someone bought it whole and then gave it back to to the king, very kind of him. So everything is very recent. So Charles II really remade the jewels in what he wanted to do. And we know that Charles II was a bling, glamorous, go big or go home kind of guy. So he made all the stuff, giant scepter, big crown and the orb. And he made the orb with its three sections to symbolise the three continents that the medievals thought there were. Am I right in saying there are two crowns? There are two crowns, the St Edward's crown and the Imperial State crown. And my top crown tip is that if you're looking at a crown thinking what crown is that this edward's crown is yellow and the imperial state crown has so many diamonds that it looks white and it looks like it's platinum but it is gold so the it's an edward's crown is the one used at the moment of crowning the imperial state crown is the one covered in diamonds and it has all these big jewels and it's the one that we see monarchs wearing at the state opening of parliament when a child draws a picture of the queen they'd be wearing the imperial state crown with the giant uh, Black Prince's ruby and the cross at the front and huge bit of Cullinan and the Stuart sapphire at the back. The St Edward's crown is more gold 
and it's got these arches and it's only for crowning so the monarch only wears it once ever when the archbishop of canterbury puts it on their head and the problem with the st edward's crown is it weighs a ton it, it weighs it's five pounds so it's like walking down with a newborn baby on your head and the Queen actually said it could snap your neck. So it's a bit dangerous. Uh, and the Imperial State Crown looks like it's heavy, but actually it's half the weight. So you, the monarch is really quite pleased to get the Edwards off and the Imperial on. But Charles will be crowned by the Edwards crown at this most sacred moment. But most of the time in the coronation, we'll see him wearing the Imperial State Crown. If he does a balcony wave, which we're expecting, he'll be wearing that. And we'll probably see him wearing it on some occasions, perhaps the state opening of Parliament. But as the Queen grew older, she stopped wearing it because it simply was too heavy. So she wore a hat for the state opening. Emily, tell me about the jewels. There was some controversy, wasn't there? Well, there was the issue of the Koh-i-Noor, which I'm sure Kate can give us much more detail on. The palace have very neatly sidestepped this by saying that the Queen Consort Camilla is going to wear uh, the Queen Mary crown instead of the one that was worn by the Queen Mother, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, well, what is it about the, the uh, Kohenor diamond that was troubling? So traditionally, the Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, wore the Queen Consort's crown, which has the Kohenor in it, which, I mean, many of our crown jewels are controversial, but that one is particularly controversial and problematic. Countries want it back. Afghanistan wants it back. India wants it back. And Pakistan wants it back. But also, most importantly... It was taken from the prince, from a a young prince in India under duress, and he was forced to give it up. So it is for so many symbolic of the oppression of the British Empire, and it simply wouldn't be possible to wear it in a coronation. Also, it's seen as having very bad luck. It's in the Queen Consort's crown because it was meant to curse any man who ever wore it. I think it would be impossible to wear it, especially in a coronation, just as Emily was saying, which is uh, meant to be sensitive about the changing notions of Commonwealth, about the changing representations of British history. So Camilla will be wearing Queen Mary's crown, which was actually a shop-bought crown. She bought that crown off the peg for her own coronation. She wanted all the queens after her to wear it, and I think she'd be very disappointed that her daughter, her daughter-in-law, did not wear it. She wanted. Where did she got it from? Garrard. Garrard made mm. it for her. So if she you need one, Tony. Yeah. They're still going. You look good. You look good. Yeah. So the both crowns were taken in from the Tower of London, where they were on show, to be renovated and cleaned, and some of the jewels sparkled a bit. And Camilla's had a few changes made to Queen Mary's crown. It had eight arches. Now it's got four. But also Cullinan, the biggest diamond we've ever found in history, found in 1905. A giant blob of it is on the front of the Imperial State crown. A giant blob of it is in the is in the scepter. And then there were three more giant blobs of it, which the Queen had used as brooches they're going in Camilla's crown and then there's nine giant blobs of it in total plus about another hundred little bits of it the size of huge engagement ring diamonds it's a gigantic diamond so the Cullinan is going to be the dominant diamond in the coronation on the front of Charles's crown and all over Camilla's crown so the Cullinan we might say was controversial because it was given by the Transvaal government but the South Africans very much wanted independence but it's less controversial than the Kohenor because the Kohenor was taken under duress and oppression it's extraordinary, isn't it, that when you think of Queen Elizabeth's coronation, none of that was to the fore at all, at least not in white Anglo-Saxon minds. And we had no consort, of course, because Prince Philip wasn't crowned, so we haven't seen a consort crowned for so very long, right back to the Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Wow. What about the other people who are coming? Are, are they allowed to, to, to be as blingy as they want to be? Well, this is a big question, actually, and... I think, you know, in 1953, everyone had to wear long dresses and tiaras uh, if you were going to the coronation. I think in a modern society, that's going to be quite tricky for most people. (laughs) I would have thought that most people will come in some formal day dress, um, more akin to a wedding. Uh, It remains to be seen, though, whether members of the royal family will go for tiaras. I think everyone would quite like to see a bit of glamour on the day. It seems only right if the king and queen are going to be wearing crowns that everyone else There's gets their diamonds left, out. Leftover bits of diamonds lying around. There are enough to go <laughs> round. Stick them in, in a hat. You know, the king also is going to want this to be a modern, a more modern occasion. It's a different day to his mother's and he is able to really, you know, lay out how his reign is going to look even at this moment by including more people, bringing in people from across the Commonwealth, of course, but also charity workers, people who work for the NHS. I would expect those kind of people to be making up the congregation, not the lords and ladies of last time.
I think that's it, isn't it? It was very much an aristocratic focus in the coronation. The Queen's maids were all aristocratic ladies of top families. And now it's very different. I think he wants it very much to be representative of both the Commonwealth but also of the country. And in the same way that we had NHS heroes and, and service people at the Queen's funeral, I think it's going to be very similar. And we simply can't start asking ambulance drivers to be wearing fantastic tiaras and, and make, you know, these gowns. I think, I think smart day dress is, is, is exactly what people should wear. And of course, some people, a tiara isn't, isn't really feasible if you wear a headscarf and we should make this, it should be completely inclusive. And I think that the whole Queen's coronation was very much a 50s one. It was post-war, but it was, it was still the age of post-Debs and it was still such a different world. And now this is so changed. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? He's been saying he's going to be wearing military uniform. That's what he's been talking of wearing instead of the sort of coronation type of gown that we've seen people wearing before. And George the Fourth, who had these great ermine looks, that's what he tried to, he inst- really instigated the idea of fashion for the king. But to wear your military uniform, I mean, that's going to make some of the anointing quite difficult. And I think it's, the a, yeah, there is a question be, over yeah. whether he will put on some of the regalia. I'm sure we will see some of it. But yes, I don't think we're going to see any breaches moments, for example, or, you know, the silk stockings not on the men anyway, as yeah. far as I can tell. It's an interesting contradiction, isn't it? You've got this really rather earnest man who who in many ways sees himself as uh, as part of the future and a very egalitarian fu- future. But you're setting him within this ancient context which is full of the most fabulous jewels possible. Actually negotiating those two halves can't be easy for anyone who's involved in the arrangement of the thing. I think you're absolutely right but one of the predictions I would make is that I think that we'll see a lot of sustainability. I'm sure you know when the Queen died there were a lot of sustainably produced flowers sustainably grown floral tributes to her and that was all at the king's request so i think we'll see a lot more of that kind of thing as well perhaps to balance out these um, more bling moments life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs united healthcare can help get you covered with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Tony Robinson's Cunning Cast with two queens of the Royal Airwaves, Kate Williams and Emily Nash. Westminster Abbey, when we were talking about it earlier, you kind of said, oh, and of course it'll be in Westminster Abbey. Why? It's just an abbey. It could could have gone to any old abbey, really, couldn't it? Uh, But it's the abbey. It's the Coronation Abbey, and it has been home to coronation since William I. All monarchs have been crowned at Westminster Abbey right back to William I and, and, and before. And we have the Coronation Chair there, and the Coronation Chair because it dates back to the 13th century, I literally think we can't move it. I think it's going, it will fall apart. The coronation chair has survived Blitz. It survived the Stone of Schoon being being bashed by a Votes for Women campaigner. It's it survived the schoolboys at Westminster graffitiing on it. I don't think we can move it anywhere. But Westminster Abbey is the, I think, the sacred place of coronation. We will never move from there. Westminster Abbey would have to be blown up and fall down for coronations in the future to be elsewhere. I've filmed there quite a lot, and I think I've read poetry and that kind of thing there. My memory is it's got pretty good acoustics given how large it is. It's fantastic. It has absolutely wonderful acoustics. The music in there is spine tingling it really is a very special place to do this and to have that on the world stage not many of the countries can boast of a venue like that with the history that it has so in terms of a global viewership 
it's a huge draw. And one thing particularly about that older music, the Handel stuff and that kind of thing, is because everyone knew that it was going to be performed in a church, it tends to be a bit gappy, doesn't it? It, it allows for reverberation. The reverberation just makes it sound grander. You're not going, hey, what was that? <laughs> it's going to be a very crammed ceremony, though. An hour and a half is a lot to get through. It's Everything a lot to get through, have. but we, we are losing some of the more bizarre ancient rituals, like the presentation of gold ingots. I think, you know, everyone would agree in the cost of living crisis is not the moment <laughs> to be doing that kind of thing. I never knew about that. The presentation of gold ingots yeah i think it's something that's happened at past coronations and you have all the dukes of of the country going in kissing the hand of the monarch and that's not going to happen just things like having 700 peers in the room when it happens all of these things are being stripped back so it's going to be a simpler faster ceremony than we've seen in the past and I think that's probably just for the best given that we're now a world of people with very short attention spans and the options of Netflix and whatever else there is to turn over to. The gold ingots I just think the optics you have the monarch giving out gold ingots to people kind of like a a beneficent sort of god and I think that also all things kind of things can go wrong Queen Victoria they all they all got dropped and people were rolling around looking for them as well as all kinds of chaos and they dropped the imperial state crown in Victoria's coronation and she thought it looked like a, a squashed pudding so anything can go wrong in the coronation so I think that if you can cut out the many ceremonies which they can't go wrong and let's hope that no one drops the imperial state crown or the St Edward's crown because if they do it's going to be all over social media in a meme and you can see with all this complexity why the queen and there was all this doubt about the queen's coronation being televised because any mistake every mistake would have been magnified and everyone would have said oh look they've made a mistake in this sacred ceremony could that be a bad omen so she really was such a trailblazer in having it televised and it's a fascinating question as to whether we'll see the whole coronation televised whether or not the anointing the sacred part of the anointing by which the archbishop of canterbury gets this special anointing oil and puts it on the monarch that that was cut out when it was the Queen, but will we see it now this time? Yeah, that's the the one piece of regalia that we haven't talked about, apart from you saying, we sound, sounded like something out of the, the Goon Show, we still have the spoon, spoon. <laughs> the sacred spoon. <laughs> sacred spoon. <laughs> so I guess some guy had bought it off Oliver Cromwell and was just using it for eating his porridge, and then thought, oh, but give it, give, us, give it back then, the sacred spoon. It's a sacred anointing spoon. So l- let's talk about, about, about this, the spoon and the oil and the little amphora thing or whatever it's called that, that that's it again that's a real old thing going back you know a thousand years before jesus isn't it yes. the idea of a king being anointed the anointed monarch the anointed king it, it, it goes right back and there is a spoon and there's an ampoula the ampoula is eagle shaped and it's full of this special anointing oil that is usually it is has a, a recipe but was remade for Elizabeth II because so much of it got lost in the Blitz. And now Charles has had it remade as well and he's made it animal product free and it's just been consecrated. So it will now be this special olive oil with, with various different oils within it, orange blossom included. And that's what's used at the moment of anointing. It's put on his head, his hands, his breast. And that's the moment by which the Archbishop of Canterbury is anointing him as monarch, as the Archbishop of Canterbury is his representative. So it's a very sacred ceremony and perhaps rather arcane. Emily, tell us about the the, the new oil. Well, it's just been consecrated, as Kate said, in Jerusalem, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And again, you know, really, you can't get a more serious venue than that in terms of being the head of the Anglican Church now. But it also is symbolic because the olives have been grown on the Mount of Olives where the king's paternal grandmother was laid to rest, Princess Alice. And so there's that symbolism as well as the religious one. And it's been brought over to the United Kingdom. Apparently, the Archbishop of Canterbury, I think, commissioned this oil to be made in this way. And it's entirely vegan, which is going to please all the hipsters out there. He's really going to... But we can't have it afterwards. We can't start putting it on our pasta. Even Absolutely if, yeah, not. No, sadly not. No. Absolutely not. But, you know, they really are thinking through the optics of everything at this point. I think I'm right in saying that when the oil dribbles over the king's head, that, that it really is, your word was, uh, arcane, in that it's about somehow within the oil is the Holy Spirit. And that as the king absorbs the oil, they kind of are genuinely God's chosen person. 
Yes, that is the moment. It's the most important moment of the coronation ritual. There you have that, you have the crowning, you have the, the monarch agreeing to their coronation oath. It's completely integral. And yet I think that people felt that they didn't want to watch, they didn't want to be showing not only such a holy moment, but also a young woman having being anointed like that in a very simple gown. I, I think there's probably a different sensibility about a, a much older man. But certainly it really will bring home how much the ceremony is a Christian ceremony, is a Church of England ceremony. And that is, I think, in a complex dialogue with this idea of making it much more faith diverse. Yeah. So it never used to, they never used to put a curtain in front of the king when he was being anointed. That was just something that happened for Queen Elizabeth II? I think that was done because it was televised. Ah. I'm not sure whether they had done that in the past. I thought it it was done away from everyone else because it was such a sacred moment between the monarch and... It is done where where most of the people watching can't see. Ah. It is done in that area where most of it can't see and it is this most private, sacred moment. Uh, And particularly, I think, when it comes to the female monarchs, it's seen as something that really does need to be retired away Mm. from public gaze and with perceptions of modesty for Victoria and, and and say for Anne. But it was with the Queen's coronation that it was really completely you know blocked out from public gaze and I, I do think we're probably going to see it I wonder if we'll see a dove come down from heaven <laughs> we've got the dove on the scepter you can wave that one around oh, really, it's fair enough. <laughs> I don't know yeah I mean how many buttons does he have to undo well, how's that all going to work and you, you know because the queen had a had a coronation dress and then she wore a different dress for that moment which was much more simple and and had the sort of sternum area exposed but you know how can you do that with a military uniform a bib <laughs> Right, let's get away from the spiritual for a, a moment and talk about who's coming. When I talked to you a couple of weeks ago, you said, we don't know who's coming. I, that I was really surprised about. No, well, look, the people who are going will know they're going. <laughs> but, but you said you didn't know if you were going or not. Well, I will be there in some capacity as a journalist. I'd love to be inside. I mean, it's a huge moment to cover. I was lucky enough to go to the Queen's funeral. From a journalistic point of view, again, it's a quite a spectacle to behold and you know a real moment in history so I'd love to go. It really emphasises how recently some of this planning has happened but if you look back to the Platinum Jubilee celebrations last year a lot of the acts performing at that huge concert outside Buckingham Palace were only confirmed with a few days to go so these things are always a bit more last minute than they appear the to be. The monarch is much more last minute than it seems to be. <laughs> I think we live in a last, last minute culture and it's interesting of course because the Queen had 8,200 people. These giant seating areas put up in Westminster Abbey which health and safety would veto now mm. and so the amount of people who can come is very much fewer and I think a lot of aristocratic families who perhaps would have expected a role are not going to get it they've had to apply and there only have been certain amounts we've heard there's only about 20 MPs going to be going and of course there'll probably be a bit of a bun fight to which MPs get to go there might be a whole reshuffle there might be completely a new different and completely new cabinet who yeah. knows just before <laughs> probably and there have to be big representations coming from the commonwealth from foreign leaders um, and there will be overseas royal families coming as well which isn't normally the case so there are a lot of people to get in there are a lot of people to seat and it is a bit of a logistical nightmare not just who's coming but also where everyone gets to sit where you where you all and i think we'll see the leaders bus that leaders bus that we saw for the queen's funeral the the bus that basically the bus that biden wouldn't take biden Biden didn't (laughs) go on the bus he went to the beast but but so you might think oh everyone knows it in january whether they're going or not but that's really not the case All the heads of the Commonwealth nations will go, won't they? I would expect to see them all there, yes, and the heads of the realms in particular, uh, of which Charles is still head of state. We'll see a lot of those. I'm sure we'll see some other world leaders as well, but I think there's also an understanding from the palace, at least, that there was such a huge turnout of world leaders for the Queen's funeral. I don't think they're expecting everyone to come again so soon afterwards but I'm sure we will see particularly perhaps from some of our our neighbouring countries. Now I know hello is always looking at the gentle side as it were of the monarchy but even hello isn't going to be able to ignore the fact that there are going to be a lot of people there who don't really want to be sitting next to each other. There is the issue of Andrew but at the end of the day he is the king's brother and I think he's likely to be there as a guest. It's obviously very convenient for everybody that Andrew had a mild case of Covid during the Platinum Jubilee because he is toxic to the royal band. People don't want to see him, particularly internationally, and there will have to be a way worked out that the focus of the seating plan, I think, is on his daughters 
and not him. But I think in terms of Harry and Meghan, it was said, oh, well, they won't be invited, which to me was a ridiculous argument. I mean, Harry is the king's son. Harry is the monarch's son. I mean, Harry is very close in line to the throne and he hasn't abdicated. He's not the Duke of Windsor who couldn't be invited to his uh, niece's coronation. He's simply going to live in California. So all of these arguments I thought were very ridiculous. There was no way that Harry wasn't going to be invited. And certainly now it seems to be the case that the Cambridge children are going to be taking a role in the procession, that Camilla's grandchildren will be taking a role in her coronation as well. There, there are, is going to be a role for children where there usually isn't in coronations. And you have the continuity as well. I think it's important, certainly for Prince George, to be there. And there's talk of him playing a role during the ceremony. Whether or not that will happen, we'll have to see. But certainly he and his siblings, Prince Charlotte and Prince Louis, are expected to be in the huge procession back to the palace. And I would expect to see them on the balcony as well. And again, going back to your point about Prince Andrew, one of the ways to sidestep the issue is by having the working royals line up on the balcony. The wider family can be inside in the Abbey on the day to witness history. But when it comes to presenting the modern monarchy, it's all going to be about that lineup on the balcony. So we will know from that lineup how the new king wants to define the rest of his family in the years to come. Very much so. And we've already seen it. You know, we saw it at the Platinum Jubilee, the Queen with her three direct heirs and uh, the Queen Consort now and the now Princess of Wales and the other children. But it was very much a slimmed down version of what we've seen in the past. We haven't talked much about the music yet. The big number that I've always remembered from uh, the coronation is Zadok the priest, which is Handel, I think. It is Handel. Handel. And Zadok was the priest who anointed Solomon with the oil. Is that why... It's in it. I think it's it's the, one of the big coronation hits for exactly that reason, Tony. I think um, it's describing exactly what you're seeing before you. There's lots of the traditional music, but also very modern music. I, I'm very intrigued to see what Andrew Lloyd Webber is going to compose. We're all so familiar with his work from musicals. Is it going to be an earworm? Is it going to be a coronation anthem? We'll never forget. And I love Debbie Wiseman, who is also composing, and uh, Shirley Thompson, I think. She's a fantastic composer, and I can't wait to hear what she what she proposes as well. So there's a, there's a lot of female composers which... You know, we, we live in a world and it's quite a lot of female composers find it quite difficult to to get a space to be heard. And I think there's going to be it's going to be a, a ceremony that we're going to be talking about for many years to come. Kate, when I was six, I can remember at the coronation sitting under the dining room table playing with my little state coach. Everyone had a tiny state coach. Are we going to have a state coach this time? We will have the state coach. The thing is, it looks fantastic, but it is the most uncomfortable thing you could possibly imagine. William IV, who was a sailor, he said it was like being at sea in the most rocky coach. Queen Victoria said it was distressing oscillation. And it's so uncomfortable that it was notable in the final years of the Queen's reign that she didn't use it in her jubilees. And indeed in the Platinum Jubilee, we had a hologram in the going round in the gold. Amazing hologram but a hologram going in the gold state coach so we will see Charles and Camilla going in the gold state coach and the symbolism the beauty it looks like Cinderella's coach but they might have a few bruises coming out of it because apparently I hope they've worked it's on incredibly suspension. Inco- yeah he's got quite a bad back so it could uh, could be pretty Hopefully unpleasant got some for extra him. padding in there and like some extra cushions do you know one of the things that is a huge difference is that our new king and his consort are well he's certainly almost exactly the same age as me, as me. When Elizabeth was crowned, God, she was a stunner. She was incredible, wasn't she? She she looked like a Disney princess riding to her coronation. And I think for younger generations, they won't realise quite what an impact she had. It was as big an impact as... Diana had all those years later. And she was a fairy princess. And it's also fascinating to remember how much she had to get over and that coronation succeeded for her because so many people thought at the time, it was such a sexist time that as a woman, she couldn't do the job. As a mother, she couldn't do the job Mm. because all the women in positions of power and positions of responsibility were usually unmarried and definitely child-free. So that people actually... They're actually... The Lancet said at the time you know, she shouldn't do this job. It's too much for a young mother. She should just wait until the children are older and then she'll be up to it. And when they put on this fantastic coronation, this convinced everyone. Even Churchill was a naysayer and he changed his mind and said, no movie star could play the role better. And that was what the coronation Mm. did. So it's going to be so interesting to see how this coronation, which can't do youth and light and rebirth in a way that it could with such a young woman, how it's going to work. 
it, it's a pretty high bar, isn't it? I thought the um, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth was just a piece of brilliance on behalf of the BBC. It was so well done, so difficult to organise, so professional and, and so moving. I think regardless of how you might feel about the monarchy, you have to admit that as an event... It was stunning. It was very moving to me watching the Queen's funeral when the imperial state crown that had been with her for so long was finally taken off. And that was the moment when the Queen, although she had passed for the the, the period of time by then, it was finally a moment when the Queen was no longer the Queen and she was being laid to rest. The actual coronation itself, the first important thing is the oath, is that right? Oath, by which the monarch swears to be the king, by which the monarch swears to uphold the constitution, the Church of England, that's the moment when the monarch says, I'm going to take my duties seriously and I'm not going to override what the duties of constitutional monarchy are. How can he swear to uphold the constitution when we haven't got one? That is true. The idea of the separation between state and monarch the idea that whatever the constitution we have whatever chaos is going on in constitution the monarch stays out of it the basic role of the monarch is to stay out of politics so this is the deal that was made in the 1600s this is the deal is still perpetuated you're not part of parliament you're out you're you're staying out of it so the oath is vital and then you then he's given a bible then he's given a bible which says you're in charge of the church of england that's a symbolism then you get the anointing then you get the anointing and then the investiture, which I think is another posh way of saying we're going to give you a load of weird things. A lot of stuff to hold. So you've got to hold the sceptre, you've got to hold the orb, and you've got to have the crown on your head. So it's a, a lot to carry. And bracelets, I think. Bracelets and the coronation ring as well. It's like it's gone to a jumble sale. <laughs> <laughs> so you wouldn't get through an airport scanner with all that on. <laughs> and where does the crowning come? The crowning comes after this. This is the great moment by which the Archbishop of Canterbury puts St Edward's crown on the head of the monarch. That's the moment, the sacred moment by which he is crowned. And then he goes out and we lose him for a bit. And then he comes back in a different crown. He goes back in a different crown. He comes back in the imperial state crown, which is much lighter. And that is the crown which he will leave the abbey wearing. That's the crown that has the Black Prince's ruby on the front. It has the Stuart sapphire on the back that when James II made a run for it, to Paris, he took the Stuart sapphire with him. He's got a bigger bit of colour on the front, and it's got a sapphire reputed to be from Edward the Confessor's ring in it. So it's got all the jewels. So you don't want to fall over wearing that crown. Elizabeth II rehearsed using books to make sure you you didn't fall. It's it's a heavy item to carry to wear on your head. So Charles will then wear the imperial state crown, and that's how we'll see him. And at times you're wearing a different type of coronation robe, coronation super tunica. We still don't know exactly which of those over gold robes or ermine robes he's going to be wearing or at all but these are the moment by which you're wearing the robes as well. Emily what are you looking forward to most as a journalist? Is it okay to say the end? Yes it's quite okay to say <laughs> no. the end. You've been working flat out on this for a very long time. Uh, no look I think it's going to be a really amazing moment to cover um, a moment in history. It's going to be really interesting to see how the king and the palace take this on from the historic notions of coronation how they modernize it and I'm also really interested to see how it goes down how many people are on the streets how many people tune in I think there is still a huge fascination uh, with the royal family overseas in particular more than you sometimes realize and it is really putting us on the map whether you like it or not I think it's going to be certainly keeping us extremely busy (laughs) and you go uh, yes, I'm interested to see how the coronation ceremony is changed, is altered for the 21st century. The Queen's coronation is so iconic. It's that iconic moment coming out of the end of World War II. People, people were still greatly suffering under ration. It was a time of a real economic distress. And all the symbolism was about rebirth and light and glamour and youth. When we think that they actually held back the news that... Edward Hillary and Tenzing Norgay had had conquered Everest so it came out on the same day as the coronation so everyone could go wow the Queen and Everest Britain will be amazing all that symbolism and propaganda and lights being set off everywhere so I'm just interested in what kind of coronation this is going to be it's a very different time we're in a cost of living crisis at war across the world the confidence that they had in 
in, in Elizabeth II's time that we weren't ever going to see a world war again. I don't think it's something we all share now. And I'm fascinated by how the whole look, the symbolism will, will be. Finally, <laughs> Emily, do you have a coronation cunning plan? My cunning plan is to pack lots of snacks, locate the toilets, make sure I have all my equipment fully charged, and then, I mean, I guess prepare for steam to come off my keyboard. It's going to be extremely busy, but a lot of fun, I hope. Looking for the Wi-Fi. Looking, looking for the 3G. For the looking, trying to find some 3G when everyone's trying to get on it. Exactly. And can't get on it. Well, obviously, my cunning plan is to get in Emily's handbag for when she's, <laughs> when she's going into the coronation. I'll just well, yeah. scramble into it. But my cunning plan is... Obviously, I'll be I'll be watching it. I'll be commenting on it, but I I'm very interested in the question of whether or not anyone will ever manage to steal the crown jewels ever again. And I think Baldrick might be interested in this question because just ten years after Charles II had these glamorous new crown jewels made, Colonel Blood uh, managed to steal them by charming the jewel keeper in the Tower of London and with, by pretending that he might marry his nephew to the unmarried daughter of the jewel keeper, and he ran off with them, and they smashed the imperial state crown to try and squash it down and tried to break a bit of the orb and break a bit of the scepter so they could ram it down one of the accomplices' trousers. Now, they didn't manage to escape because the alarm was raised, and uh, weirdly, Charles II let him off after trying to steal the crown jewels and gave him some land, gave him most a pension and land in Ireland. But I don't think we could ever see the crown jewels stolen ever again. But wouldn't that be the most audacious heist? It would be stealing the Mona Lisa. If you could, someone could grab the crown jewels from Charles's head when he's coming out and, and run off with them. Who was he, Colonel Blood? Colonel Blood was an, a drifter. He'd been in the parliamentary army and then he'd been sort of working through the underworld of 17th century society and then he thought me and my mates were going to steal the crown jewels but frankly it's not the most difficult job to do because they were kept by a jewel keeper in the Tower of London and if you paid a little bit of money the jewel keeper would get them out of the cupboard and give them to you so you can't really think it's that hard I'd for like Colonel, to... Colonel Blood to overpower the jewel keeper tie him up the jewel keeper was also 77 tie him up and say okay I'm taking them now and I'm gonna bash them up and stick them down my trousers and stick them in my swag bag and try and leap over the tower, tower walls but they didn't quite get away well who knows whether something like that will happen this time it would be it would add to the drama so my cunning plan is wondering whether there are some of the greatest robbers out there thinking this is our moment to really grab the crown jewels well here's to charles here's to camilla and here's to the ghost of captain blood <laughs> kate williams emily nash thanks so much for coming in Thanks for listening. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on Twitter at Tony underscore Robinson. And, of course, you can follow all our podcast news on Twitter and Instagram at CunningCastPod. Don't forget to follow us, share a review, and hit the notification bell to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Tony Robinson's CunningCast is produced by my queen, Melissa Fitzgerald, and it's a Zinc Audio production. 